Welcome to A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library Podcast. It's brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. And my name is Jeff Milo, and I'm joined by Mary Graham. Hello. Hello. And we just got done talking to Laura E. Weymouth, which you're about to hear that interview. And Mary Graham, you're a big fan of this author. I am, yes. I've been a big fan since her debut novel, The Light Between Worlds. Which we talk about. Which we do talk about. Uh, but this is primarily a book to discuss her latest novel, A Consuming Fire, yeah. uh, which is her fourth book. So she has many books. You're going to be so excited, dear listener. After you listen to this podcast, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, yes, I need to read her stuff. Luckily, four whole books, because by the time this episode airs, her fourth book will have been released. It will be available to you. It will be here at That's the right. Ferndale Area District Library. Tell listeners about A Consuming Fire. This is sort of an alternate history set in a land known as Weatherell. Yes. If I'm saying that correctly. Yeah, so... Didn't listen to the audiobook. <laughs> this is a young adult novel set in this sort of alternate Britain known as Albion. And it's a bit of an alternate history. What if the Roman o- occupation lasted mm-hmm. longer than mm-hmm. it did in, in our history? And then what if once the Romans left, the borders just kind of closed? Right. And so... Christianity as we know it left with the Romans and never came back, you know, through the the Christianization from Ireland or back up from Rome. And so this sort of other religion develops. There is this fiery god who lives on top of the highest mountain in Albion. And every 18 years, a girl from this village, Wetherell, is sent up to the mountain to sacrifice something to him. Not her life, Usually it's it's usually like a piece of herself, right. like her tongue or her hands. Right. And she comes back. And this is an agreement. It is an agreement. accepted. Right. It's, it's every 18 years we do this for peace in our kingdom right. um, so that we don't all get scorched because mm-hmm. he's, you know, a very fiery, sure. burning kind of volcano sort of deal. Devil-esque. Devil-esque, truly. Um, and so the main character is this girl, Anya. She has a tw- twin sister, Ilva, and she's always known. Like the girls who grew up in this village, you know, you do the math. If you're born in the, the year that's going to be the 18th year since the last girl went... You're sort of like, is it going to be me? If it's not me, it's going to be somebody. I know this place is not very big. And so Anya has sort of always known that Ilva is going to be the one that goes. And Ilva totally takes it on. She's like, I'm going. I'm going to I'm gonna pay the price. We're going to be good for another 18 years. Well, Ilva goes, but then she comes back and dies. Right. And and people, these, these girls are not supposed to die. Mm-hmm. They are supposed to continue to live, you know, missing a part of themselves. This is the agreement. This is the agreement. And so Anya takes care of her sister's body, dresses it for burial. There's a tradition where it's broken down to the bones. Um, she makes a knife out of one of her sister's leg bones. And in her grief, she's like... Oh, I'm going. I'm going to that mountain. I'm going to kill God. Expediting coming of age and now very much in revenge mode. Yes. Well, and part of the problem is that technically the agreement hasn't been honored. Ilva didn't give anything to the God. Oh, yes, so he's right. also very angry and things keep catching on fire. Right. Uh, and so at first, you know, Anya sort of is able to get out of her village by saying, oh, well, someone's got to go sacrifice something to him, so I'll do it, hiding a bone knife behind my I back. I apologize in advance, listener, but I don't apologize to Mary Graham when I say that you could say that Anya has a bone to pick. Okay, L- Listener, sorry. you see, w- this is what we deal with on a regular li- basis. They both, they both have a literal bone to pick. They both... <laughs> God is angry, Anya's yeah. angry. Um, and so it's an adventure story. Yeah. It's a road trip story. She sets off on her own two feet. She meets people along the way. She meets... Um, 
you know, a, a scrappy but kind-hearted, ultimately, he doesn't want you to know it, but he is, kind-hearted thief um, who's very good with throwing knives. Mm-hmm. A, ra- a rapscallion. A rapscallion. Um, she meets sort of his extended adoptive family. Uh, she meets rich people that she's very unimpressed by. Mm-hmm. She meets some really creepy religious authorities. Mm-hmm. And I just, I found this to be such an engaging book there were times when i had to like put it down because it gets very intense but there were other times when i was like i can't stop reading i have to know yeah i have to know what happens so i'm so excited for everyone to hear our interview with laura and her writing process and how she comes up with these sort of ideas and and the context of all of this i think we started off talking about uh the weather uh and laura's currently snowbound she's got some lake effect snow here is our chat thanks for joining us how are you Oh my goodness, thank you for having me. I'm great. We got like a huge downfall of lake effect snow last night. I'm a snow baby, so I'm super excited. We've sort of gotten constant flurries here. It's only just sort of starting to accumulate. And I have a coworker who is very much also a snow person. So mm-hmm. he's been like going out into the library courtyard on breaks and just sort of spinning around. <laughs> and in the children's room, I'm one of the youth librarians, and luckily mm-hmm. in the children's room, we have these enormous windows. So whenever there is weather of any kind, people just flock to the kids' corner to go oh, look at that. it, like big storms, any kind of snow. So it's <laughs> we just all kind of emerge from our offices, like, woo, yep. pretty. So, I'm a snow person, wow. too. It's you know, wonderful. I mean, a library is the best place to enjoy any sort of weather, so. <laughs> it really is. We have a fireplace <laughs> as well. That, oh. like, anytime it's below 40 degrees, we turn it on. And you, we, there's a direct line of sight from the youth desk to the fireplace in the next room. And we had, mm-hmm. we updated our furniture at one point last year. And they put these big wing back chairs in front of the fire. And it oh blocked our view. And I mentioned it <gasps> off, it, I mentioned it offhand to our director. And she was like, oh, we're moving those. No, you need to be able to see the fireplace. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, there you yeah, go. It was great. Yeah, I was going to awkwardly ask whether or not the, the the weather or just the elements in general influence you as a writer. I mean, even this book in and of itself, we're climbing up mountains. We are outside. Everything's all, on fire. Everything's on fire. It's <laughs> elemental. Um, do the elements and the weather influence you um, as a writer? They definitely do. Um, I really love describing things. That's like my sweet spot as a writer. Like, I don't care what it is. Is it the inside of a building? Is it outside? Is it something gross and creepy? Is it something beautiful and lovely? I want to describe it in detail. So definitely the weather does impact what I'm writing. And in advance of a story, I decide which season I want to set it in to kind of reflect the overall mood and to figure out like the practicalities of are they going to travel because I don't really want them to be doing it in the middle of winter unless the book's going to be like overall miserable. Um, So that's one thing that I definitely take into consideration beforehand. And as far as just like weather too, actual geography had a really huge impact on a consuming fire because I live in upstate New York and I'm really used to the terrain of North America. Like I grew up in Canada. We went on a road trip once where we drove for 22 hours and we were in the province of Ontario at the beginning and we were in the province of Ontario at the end. So like I'm used to everything being huge. Right. And so a consuming fire is set in the UK which is not huge, 
but like in my mind, it takes a super long time to get places. So I had a timeline initially of how I thought that the story of a consuming fire was going to go. And then I had to reduce it by like a factor of five, realizing that it would not take nearly that long to get where she was going. And I was thinking too about like, I have lived near the Rockies before or something. Okay, so this mountain, it's gonna take like four or five days to climb it. Well, Bane Nevis in the book is inspired by Ben Nevis, which is the highest peak in the UK in the real world. And it's like a seven hour round trip to get to the top and back down. <laughs> so so I had to alter a lot of stuff based on the real world geography. <laughs> but did you did you kind of put yourself into the mindset having been someone who has been exposed to several mountains before looking up at one saying, what if an evil God lived up there? Hmm. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and as soon as and I knew that I wanted it to be like the highest peak in the UK as well. And then as soon as I found out it, it's called Ben Nevis, I was like, Oh, obviously, I'm going to switch that to Bane Nevis, so it sounds creepy and evil. But nice. uh, definitely, definitely. And uh, the book does connect a little bit to C.S. Lewis's book, Until We Have Faces. And there's a god of the mountain in that story as well. So I kind of I riff on C.S. Lewis kind of more than most people, I guess. <laughs> Which you have before. Yes. Um. Yes, all listeners should go read The Light Between Worlds immediately, uh, especially if you've ever thought to yourself, gee... Wouldn't wouldn't it kind of mess you up if you fell back out of a wardrobe after growing into an adult woman and then you oh were goodness. seven again? Right. Like I and it's the perfect time of year to read it too. That's uh, winter oh, yeah. is such a good season for all of your books. I think that's when I read all of your books. But yeah, um, I'm so glad that you brought up the geography and the fact that like everything is very based in real. UK like which was very fun for me to read because like they, they're in Sarum and I'm like oh that's Salisbury Cathedral like mm -hmm. that's that's what that is um because Jeff and I have been talking a lot about how much we enjoyed this sort of alternate history side of it like when I've been describing this book to people I'm like okay so what if after the Romans left they sealed the borders like the what ifs of it all have been a lot of what I enjoyed about the book and what's made people sort of sit up and go, oh, about the book, like, yeah, tell me more. Yeah. So, Is that where it came from? Was it like a what if for you when you thought of this book? So I have a background in medieval and Renaissance studies, and I did not finish my degree, but it's come in super handy as an author of historical fantasy because I draw on it a lot. And uh, in this book particularly, this is the one where I've drawn on it the most heavily, and I actually started out wanting to write this one in like a very vague dystopian future. And my team was like, yeah, we don't want to do a dystopia because, you know, nobody's into that. It's been done to death. And I was like, well, you'll barely recognize it. And they were like, well, can you find a way to take that energy and put it in a historical fantasy? And that's where the what ifs came in, because I was like, OK, well, how can I make a historical alternate version of England feel dystopian? And I was like, OK. The Roman occupation was a big deal, and it fundamentally altered the countryside and the culture. And then I thought, well, what if that went on a lot longer so it had even more of an impact? And then what if after that they became really insular and just shut down? I was like, that would definitely give you that kind of isolated, slightly decaying dystopian feel. So that's where all of that came from. I love that so much, especially because I was in like high school during the peak of the dystopia boom and I never mm -hmm. really 
got into it. And that was partially because I, I thought about it a lot and I realized I was a huge historical fiction reader and I still am. And the past is kind of dystopic enough. I was like, I don't, wanna, I don't really want to read the sort of like future. I want to read like, I don't know, The Great Fire of London or something like that. <laughs> so... <laughs> This is how it actually was. This is how it actually mm-hmm. was. Well, and my preferred flavor of dystopia has always been one where they don't have the advanced technology. Like we've regressed and the technology is not available, which is weird because I love sci-fi and Star Trek, but I just, it's not something that I enjoy as much in like a more fantasy setting. Well, and I, so I always like the backward, like we've gone backwards. And that is and, so key to this book, I think, because like the reveals in that like you go in thinking i don't know how much we want to spoil <laughs> not the, too much but not too much because the book's just <laughs> come not out even we, out yet sure. we want people to read it um but the, like the reveals in this book that come f- that like are a product of the isolation and like there's no way that anya would know these things mm-hmm. uh, those are those are the points where like i had to do a lap i had to like put the book down and be like oh my god <laughs> this was true all along but i didn't know it and neither did she and <laughs> It was just a really, this was one of the most kind of dynamic reading experiences I've had in a while because there was part of me that like really didn't want to put the book down, but also it's so intense that there were points where I was like, I need to take a breather. This is a lot. But then you'd get a reveal and I'd be like, nope, we're going to the end. I have to know. I have to know. (laughs) Yeah. It's incredibly well paced. I'm so glad because I really enjoyed putting this book together and I like to layer things. Like I'm a bit obsessive when it comes to like subtext and making sure that things come full circle and you get like that satisfying aspect of the book that really what I think of as is rewarding rereading like I want you to be able to read the book the first time realize all these things and then if you go back the next time you'll see all the instances where it was seeded in and you didn't notice it the first time around I love that because I'm a big rereader all of my favorites I go back to again and again so as a writer, I always like to put in things that will reward people who do that so that it's not a book that you just want to read one time. You want to come back to it and see, okay, well, where did this tie in before? So I really enjoy layering things like that into the stories. I have so many questions. Um, so what, what was key to getting into the mindset of Anya? Anya was very easy to get okay. into the mindset of because it is basically i mean you can read it as a very straightforward girl sets out on a revenge quest to kill a god but i mean there's a significant um portion of the readership who are going to realize that this is a book about religious deconstruction and so that's something that i've dealt with in my own life i was raised in strict evangelical churches and obviously you come to a point where you realize well there are certain aspects of this belief system that are really destructive and that are very damaging to large swaths of humanity and basically view them as expendable and as sometimes fundamentally wrong for who they are. And I wanted to write a fantasy for teens because that's the lens through which I always viewed things as a teen that digs into that and that shows that this is wrong and there are ways out of it and there are ways to find community and there are ways to find hope. And especially for teens who are still stuck in it at that point in time, I wanted to be able to offer that to those readers. Yeah, I I don't know how radical this should or shouldn't be, but this is a book that for me encourages a teen reader and any reader, adult too, to ask questions. Yeah. Just ask questions. And I mean... Question the authority. 
what I loved about it is is the nuance of it. Like it doesn't it something that sometimes frustrates me is when folks who quite understandably are going through their deconstruction experience, you know, can tip into kind of all religion bad or like all organized mm-hmm. religion sort of deal. And I I felt like there was so much nuance in this mm-hmm. book and a lot of that comes from the crucifix that they don't know that is a crucifix that's like mm-hmm. washed up from I don't yes. know Ireland or, or wherever is sort of having the normal yep. Christianization history um, and I love that they look at it and they go oh it's a man suffering that's a nice change <laughs> um, yes. and and so and that for me is just like okay like it's the whole like there's something else out there mm-hmm. and and it's it's the system that we're in that is the problem it's not Sure. It's, you know, um, oh, I had something. I had it. <laughs> I lost it. <laughs> Edit this part out, Jeff. No, that's okay. Well, <laughs> take us through Take us through more of these what ifs, though. Let I mean, to set the story up, this is a situation where uh, two sisters, one has to go off for the sacrifice, but tragedy ensues. So what if the authority that already asks something takes more? What yeah. if the reserved introvert has to become the extrovert. What if we start questioning superstition? Did, did, was it like a cavalcade of what ifs for you, Laura? It was, and it started with a really specific, really small what if, which is that there's a dog in the book. There's this dog called Midge, and she's this fuzzy, happy-go-lucky herding dog, essentially. And I have a Shetland sheepdog named Fred. And he is what started the whole book and why there is a dog in the book. Thank you, Fred. I was walking, yes, I was walking him through the woods out behind our house and he was bounding along ahead of me. And I was thinking, you know, what if I was a book character walking? Where would I be going right now walking behind this dog that's bounding along ahead of me? And then the phrase, the ones who went, popped into my head. And I was like, okay, well, if there's this group of people called the ones who went and a girl who is about to become one of them, where did they go and where is she going? And they obviously, um, they would have a reason to go. And I thought, well, they probably come back if people are referring to them as the ones who went. And I was like, so what's the whole story around that? And the whole thing just grew out from there. So it started with a what if, and then there were just a whole lot more that I added in. That's great. I remembered what I was going to say, which is about sacrifice. And Mm. that I think you do such a fantastic job both if you know you're reading this just sort of on one level for plot but also if you're also reading it about religious deconstruction um because sacrifice particularly in women is so valorized Mm -hmm. and and i mean this is something that i even like i'm a practicing christian myself and that's something that i even struggle with because it just feels different even even when i'm like okay like sacrifice conceptually you see it in some ways you think about that washed up crucifix and again it's like oh again it's nice that it's a man doing all the sacrificing but in your own life you're like well you're but you're already expected to sacrifice so much Mm -hmm. by like patriarchy anyway so how Mm -hmm. do you how do you deal with that in your own religious life and i i loved like how sort of in in your face you make it i mean these women are coming back without hands or Mm -hmm. tongues or eyes or the ability to have children like that's it's the demands are very obvious and in some ways i think it's like makes it worse than if they just like all went up to the mountain every 18 Mm -hmm. years and you knew you were never gonna see them again Mm -hmm. so i i really liked that sort of like 
difference from what I normally see in in stories like this, like something like Uprooted, which is another book I really love, where, you know, well, I guess those girls do come back, but they're so refined and they don't really fit in. But it is sort of like you never really expect to see them the same way again. So... I wanted it to there to be like a really physical and visceral manifestation of what these women had done and what the system that they were within had taken from them. Because so often we don't see it and it gets brushed under the carpet and it's baked into our culture. It's not just a religious thing. Like I'm a mother and a huge part of like mom culture is, okay, well, you're going to do it all and you're never going to complain. And you're going to give your kids the best possible life. And you do you are not allowed to require things for yourself within that. And you just give like piece after piece after piece after piece. And you're viewed as a bad mother if you don't do that. So the concept of female sacrifice is just like built into our culture. It's not even just a religious thing, although many religions do feed off of that as well. Um, so I wanted to make it like really just in your face in the book and like impossible to avoid confronting. And there's uh, actually an old, somewhat less popular fairy tale called The Handless Maiden. And it's about this woman who is a mother who ends up losing her hands and just terrible things happen to her throughout the course of the story. So I wanted to basically have an avatar for her within the book, which is Anya's mother who lost her hands to the god of the mountain. I also think about how the wear and tear might be internalized or the trauma might be here and you're seeing this wear and tear literally with missing limbs mm-hmm. yeah um in terms of what religion might do to people right so. right i also Absolutely. want to talk about the anger in the book the because, rage yay um and, and also I, the bone knife and bone yeah <laughs> so the bone knife. so the story the like I have to admit, as I was reading this book, I would occasionally, uh, you know, I'm in the youth services office. I occasionally do a lap back to the circulation and reference office and pass one of my friends uh, who works in circulation. I'd stop at her desk and I'd be like, she's got a bone knife. It's made from her sister's femur and she's off to kill God. And my friend was like, oh, my God, I can't wait until this book comes out. (laughs) For regularly listeners of the pod, it's Roddy. Uh, Roddy's the one that I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) And so eventually uh, she was like, you should just you should just start this discussion with Laura and just like log on to the Zoom chanting bone knife, bone knife, bone knife. (laughs) So so tell us about rage and getting that getting that into this book. What what was the key to that? So again, in the religious environment that I grew up in, I just constantly talk about religion in relation to this book. And it's been an interesting experience putting it out in the world because I do have like a small subset of the readership who are upset because they say that it's Christian propaganda. And in no way, shape or form did I think that would ever be a response because that's the lens that I write within because it's what I understand. It's very much not a pro-Christianity book. And it essentially the shape of the story I intended to be such that you could view it as any organized religion and as what happens within any organized religion when destructive things like the exploitation of people, misogyny, rampant nationalism, take over uh, fundamental human virtues like love, peace, justice as the core of that belief system. So let's just address that right now and then push it aside. But within the religious system that I grew up within, women's anger in particular is seen as totally unacceptable. 
Like you can express sadness, you can express joy, but anger, even over injustice, and especially over injustice done to you or done to your gender or done to anyone else that the group deems as other or outside of the fold is viewed as completely unacceptable. And I mean, again, within my own religious lens, I have this book that I was supposed to read and uphold called The Bible for Us. And as a kid, I read it because that's I was interested to see if it stacked up with what I was being taught in the system. And I was like, look, people are furious in here all the time and it's viewed as a good thing and as right and productive. So I've kind of been on this journey where the last three books that I've worked on have all been about anger. And my third YA, which has been out for a year, is called The Rush of Wings. And I've referred to it elsewhere as being essentially a hymn to anger, because the main character just completely embodies anger as an emotion. And then in this book, A Consuming Fire, I wanted to talk about that very specific form of anger directed towards having grown up in a system that you initially believed in and then realized was fundamentally unjust. Mm -hmm. So this is the one that deals with that. Um, and it's just sort of a theme that I've been exploring really in depth for the last few years. And I did, I came up with the idea for both a rush of wings and a consuming fire in 2016, at which point I think a lot of people were angry about a lot of things. And a consuming fire too was born out of um, the Me Too movement and its corollary, which was called the Church Too movement, which was about sexual assault within the Christian church and how it had all just been brushed under the rug for years and years and years, despite the fact that it's supposed to be a safe environment. So I had a lot to be angry about, and I wanted to find a productive way to channel it and to give people um, a lens through which to see, okay, if I'm angry as well, that's okay. And that can be a good and right and valuable thing. I'm so glad you brought up A Rush of Wings because as <laughs> soon as you were doing promos for that book and you were like, oh, it's my anger book, I was like one click. Uh, because, <laughs> and I actually, I gave it as uh, Christmas gifts to a lot of my friends who were also like angry young women. I was like, behold, mm -hmm. a book for us. And so what I loved about reading A Consuming Fire, you know, right after that one is that like, yes, Ravana in... A rush of wings is so angry and I love it makes her so stubborn and she's like mm -hmm. oh I'm going to win out of spite which is something yeah. I deeply identify with but I also loved that with Anya it's not quite it's not that her rage comes and goes but it's not a straightforward journey that's a very kind of I feel like circular cyclical process of that kind of deconstruction of like realizing something's wrong but it's not that easy like you have the push and pull of like this is what you've known your entire life this has been the core of your worldview and so i love that for her it's like there's sort of always these like banked coals mm. and they sort of they grow they recede as things happen to her but they're what allows her to i don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say triumph in the end mm -hmm. yeah um and i just I just loved that a lot. That's like anger can be central to your story and it still has a lot of different dimensions. And of course, different characters are going to experience it differently. Right. Anger. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. and it, it was interesting to contrast the two because Rowena, like that's her whole temperament and her whole persona is she's just like a fundamentally short fused person. Mm -hmm. And 
she's still valuable and wonderful in her own right and able to demonstrate mercy and self-control and discipline and love for others while that is a huge aspect of who she is as a person. Whereas Anya, I would not describe as an angry person at all. Temperament-wise, she's very meek. She's quite shy. She can be a little bit passive. But circumstances have created this within her, like this well of anger that has risen up because of the injustice that she sees. And it is something that she draws strength from and that uh, fluctuates throughout her journey, but that is sort of like a constant for her. And it's the thing that pushes her out of her initial environment towards um, her ultimate end and the triumph that you talked about. So it's a really, really productive thing for her. Yeah. I do love what you say about reading the Bible and being like, what do you mean people are mad in here all the time? Like, Yael puts a tent peg through a guy's head and she is the heroine of that story. So it's like, oh, biblical womanhood? Cool. Let me grab my tent peg. That's so. yeah, that's one of my favorite stories. It's just there's there's a lot of it in there. And there's even the one when I can't remember if it's Elijah or Elisha. Um, there's youths mocking him for being uh-huh. involved. And he calls these she bears out of the forest and they maul all of the youths to death. That... Um so you know, it's it's definitely a common theme. <laughs> I used to work at a church camp in the mountains of West Virginia, and we had bears up on that mountain. Mm-hmm. And so that was a common story we would tell the kids. <laughs> we were like, here is bear safety. You need to be with an adult after dark, or else the bears are going to come get you like they did oh, the kids goodness. with Elisha. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> also, technically, here is a book about sisters. Yes. And yes. anger is a part of the grieving process. And I think that that is the whole other aspect that I found to be compelling about this book is that, yes, the anger motivates the uh, 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 enterprise toward killing God, but uh, all while still grappling with death for sister. Right. Mm -hmm. And that that's a wound you have on your heart. And the the different types of grief, like the grief of the grief that I think she has for her mother who's still alive, but who she's never Mm -hmm. really known. Like she hears these stories about how her mom used to be, but she's never known that person. The grief for her sister who's like hanging out as a ghost in various forms of decay, which was a very creepy and great detail. Um, And, but also the grief of your entire world, like the foundation of it being gone. I, I thought that that was all just so nuanced yep everybody in this book has so many feelings that's visceral yes (laughs) well and initially i had thought of very clearly and definitively mapping anya's journey onto the stages of grief and you do like you see them throughout the book like i tried to sort of unpack and have moments where she experiences all of them so it's sort of born from the fact that I had initially wanted to be like, okay, well, here's where she's walking through this stage and this stage and this stage. But it felt a bit too episodic. So I sort of wove them in differently. But I definitely did want to touch on and show her experiencing all of those stages of grief before she comes to the end of the story. talk about Tyrion. I love Tyrion so much. So when I was also first telling 
my friend Roddy, who works in circulation, about this book. I was like, oh, she's got a bone knife and she's off to kill a god. And Roddy was like, she's not going to fall in love with the god, is she? And I was like, I don't think so. This seems, this seems, <laughs> right, because like, I have not really read, but I've heard the premise of a number of YA books that sort of end up like that. And I'm like, okay, it's not my jam. I hope people have fun with it. But as soon as Tyrion came on the scene, I was like, nope, Roddy, there's an intrepid thief with throwing knives. And she was like, thank God. Um, I'm I'm realizing I have a thing for characters who have knives because uh, I also hmm. really, really love the Queen's Thief books. Um, yeah. And there's in the fourth one, there's a scene where Eugenides is telling one of his younger friends like oh yeah like my wife the queen and i have matched daggers i gave i gave that to her as a wedding present so that if like she ever feels the need to assassinate me at least it's one that i I have a matching dagger with and he's like he's saying it with stars in his eyes it's very romantic and his younger friend sophos is like what the heck what what the heck but but i really relationship goals literally (laughs) everybody go read the queen's thief series Mm -hmm. there's going to be a central romance and you're going to be like how did megan wayland turner convince me of that but she's that good Mm -hmm. so anyway um so i was very excited so laura your thoughts on knives knives. (laughs) um so i watched just hours and hours of YouTube videos about knife making and knife throwing in order to write the book most effectively. I did not have any thoughts on knives beforehand (laughs) and still don't have a super lot of strong feelings about them, but I know a fair bit about them now. Yes. Yeah, because there's a lot that goes into it. I don't want to keep them around or anything, but it's the competence of a character who has them and who, you know, is like, here is this, you know, sharp-edged thing that weird i love that the paradox of knives are actually safer the sharper they are like a blunt knife is is worse for you is more likely to cut you in a kitchen than a sharp one exactly Mm -hmm. and and again just the competence of like this this thief who is really good at throwing knives really close to people without hitting them um tell us tell us about creating that character yeah um so Almost every book that I have, there's a character who just walks onto the page as I'm drafting it. I'm like, hello, here you are. And they come in sort of fully formed just as they are. And for this book, Tyrion was that character. I was writing Anya out on her journey. She's walking along with Midge. It's early on in the story. She's just like emerged into the wide world from the forest for the first time. I was like, well, she should meet somebody who's an obstacle and who's going to be, you know, some sort of difficulty along the way. And so the very first time that I wrote their meeting, it did not happen as it currently does in the book. It was just they sort of fell in with each other on the road. But here was Tyrion, and he was exactly the way that he is in the book. A bit of a problem, very rough around the edges, sort of an annoying person to be around until you get to know him. Um, And definitely somebody who causes a lot of friction. And I just loved him. I loved him to pieces. And as I initially wrote him, my team was not fully convinced of him. They were like, I don't know. He's a bit edgy. He's a little bit gross. Um, and I, because of just one scene towards the beginning of meeting him, um, he's been in a, a prison cell and cuts off all his hair because there were headlights in the prison cell. And it's just like shocking to Anya. She's like, what did you do? And then he tells her and she's like, oh, ew, disgusting. And my agent in particular was like, you can't come back from that. People are not going to view him as a romantic interest. And I was like, I can sell them on it. Trust me, I can do it. (laughs) You did. (laughs) I think your love interests are always fantastic. Uh, But yeah, I 
a real, real soft spot in my heart for Tyrion, especially because he's kind of a slow burn as a character. Like, early on, you learn that he has the ability to shapeshift. And yes. you're like, oh, that's weird. Okay. Weird. And then for most of the book, it's like moving on. And for a long time, I was like, are we ever going to figure out why he can shapeshift? And I'm not even someone who needs everything explained. I'm like, stuff is already weird here in, in fantasy England. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Maybe people just... They've already got a god up on a mountain that they're sending people to on a regular basis. Who am yeah. I to know? But then when you find out the reason for it, you're like, Jesus, that's so much better slash worse than I could have imagined. <laughs> so, and, and it came, I mean, I'm just so impressed by the structure and the pacing of this book. Because every time I thought I knew what was up, it was like one more piece of information. And I was like, you're kidding. Mm-hmm. It, it, I was just gripped. It was fantastic. Well, thank you. And so. it was really good practice because... My fifth book that's coming out next year is a murder mystery set in 1920s England. So, you know, I had to throw a bunch of twists into a consuming fire just to bring the story full circle at all of the different points and to reveal, like, the depths of this world and of corruption that's taking place within it. And it was really good practice for then going on to write a murder mystery because obviously the whole point of a murder mystery is to have a bunch of twists at different points. And with that book, I had a really detailed synopsis that I sent to my editor and she read it and she was like, okay, great, fantastic. I love this one particular big twist. And then as I was drafting it, I thought of something completely in addition to all that stuff and put it in and sent it to her. And she was so thrilled because she was like, I almost never get surprised by a twist because I see the plot in advance. She was like, I love this. And I was so happy. (laughs) That's so impressive to me because as a as a writer myself, I'm allergic to plot, which is why I've never I definitely finished. was at the beginning, and I've had to like yeah. get over it and desensitize myself. Like yeah. when you have like small amounts of peanut gradually building up your tolerance. <laughs> so I've been like that with plot, where my first book, The Light Between Worlds, has very little of it, and then I've just incrementally added more and more as I go. <laughs> uh. I think I should wrap up with an actual spoiler. Nothing bad happens to the dog. Nothing bad happens to the dog. I love that you note yes. this on your website. Um, yeah, anyone who's who's ever concerned, uh, Laura's website has full content notes, a, which I find very helpful when recommending books to folks. Oh, yeah. Um, Just in general, like the dog thing, of course, is adorable. But yes. like there's also very sincere, like I, 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 I admire that having that on the website. Yeah, and I just, I... We we also have been talking, we read up on some of the early reviews and we're equally puzzled in right. some ways. We were sort of like, did you did you read the book? She goes up a mountain to kill, kill a God. deity. I'm confused. <laughs> right. So. I, and I really did not expect for there to be such polarized opinions on it. I thought it was fairly straightforward. So that was a bit of a shock to me. But then I was like, well, you did something interesting. You've got people thinking. I mean, they have strong feelings about it either way. Yeah. And hopefully (laughs) that translates to a lot of people saying, well, now I must purchase this book and find out for myself. Um, But yeah, it was was interesting to me. uh, And I sort of wonder, you know, sort of what that has to say for folks who don't grow up religious or don't have the experience of kind of having this deconstruction process. Um, Just the idea, you know, that like, oh, a a book about someone's religious inner life is not incompatible with a book about women doing things and like going on adventures. (laughs) 
Uh, well, and it's interesting because it has, I think, spoken the most deeply to people who grew up within some sort of organized religious background, and not necessarily even Christianity, too, because I have Muslim friends who've read it, and they really appreciated the thematic aspects of the book and just what it touches on. And uh, I think it's easier to just, like, take it at face value if you don't have a strong religious background. Um, and then you can just read it, you know, as a straightforward adventure story. And there may be aspects that don't necessarily speak to you specifically. But it's definitely not like there's no, like, Jesus lion right. resurrecting no. from the dead. Like, <laughs> it's true. I mean, I do kind of want to say to people, it's like, oh, if you want that, you can go read Jack Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> He's still yeah, out I mean, there. Like, the one, the one religious element that is viewed positively within the book is this crucifix that the girls find. And it's only viewed as such because it's an instance of somebody who they don't expect to be asked to sacrifice, obviously suffering. And because for Anya, it is a strong connection to her dead sister. And she views her dead sister as a source of strength and of motivation and of courage. So, you know, it's really, that's the only purpose yeah. that it serves within the book. And something that I actually loved about that is that they, I mean, they don't fully understand it because it's got the Madonna and child on the back and they're like, oh, like this man is suffering instead of this woman and child. How lovely. But of course, if you are, if you do recognize the imagery, you're like, oh, the man is the child grown up. Um, yes. And, and like, that's something that they just don't know because yeah. they don't have access to that. And I, I loved that detail of like, I love that it can mean something to them on its own face, just as an object without them knowing really what's behind it yeah which is something that i was very intentional about including in the book because i do think that many organized religions although they have a lot of problematic elements also have a lot that is beautiful and valuable and inspirational and sustaining to offer to people which if they didn't we wouldn't have billions of people throughout the world who are devoutly religious so I wanted to touch on that in the book and not throw the baby out with the bathwater and be like, okay, well, everything that she has ever learned, all of it is totally worthless and we're going to start from scratch, which for some people, that is what they need to do. And it's their journey, which is, you know, if that's what you need to do, go for it. But it was not Anya's journey and it has not been my journey. So I wanted to be able to write compellingly about what my sort of experience with that has been. And I love that nuance so much and it's also what i love not to make this completely about the light between worlds because we are mostly talking about a consuming fire but what i love so much about the light between worlds and whenever i have friends who sort of talk about the problem of susan i throw that book at them and i'm like she gets it because because like there's the nuance of narnia and the sort of lucy and susan idea that i think people like philip pullman noted nemesis of me on this podcast yep. you know Misses, I'm like, oh, Mr. Pullman, you're so, when it comes to fairy tales, you're so smart. And I have so many questions for you. I know you listen to this podcast. So. <laughs> Phil, come um, on the podcast. The Stop ignoring our emails. It's interesting because, I mean, I think children nowadays are really perceptive. Like, I think they're in growing more perceptive and like more socially and emotionally aware because the problem of Susan is not something that ever troubled me when I read the Narnia books as a child. It was just did not even blip on my radar. And I have a 10 and an eight year old now. And last winter, I read the Narnia series to them and I did not give any commentary, any of my thoughts on the books. I just read them as engagingly as possible, made all the voices, you know. So, and when we got to the last battle and we got to the bit about Susan, they picked it out immediately 
and they were horrified. And it did not even like, it didn't even, like I said, blip on my radar when I was a child. It's not something that I realized and got upset about until I was a teenager and an adult going back to read the books. But they as children now, like I think the next generation of kids coming up are just so smart and intuitive and like attuned to other people and emotional journeys. And like they just immediately noticed that and they were really upset about it. Yeah. And I mean, I remember I didn't have much of a reaction to it beyond like, oh, that's sad. Like I'm disappointed as a reader because I loved Susan as a child because bow and arrow, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, yes. I was like, well, I want to be her. She gets our tree. Um, but as I've gotten older and done more children's literature, like study, you know, I, I realized that like what C.S. Lewis is doing is giving her his arc because her whole thing is like, oh, I'm so grown up. I'm too grown up to be a child or believe in childish things, which is part of why he left the church as a young man. And I, I want to sit there and be like, Jack, the children reading this book don't know your life story. They don't know that that's a self-insert yes. moment. That doesn't make... They don't get it. It doesn't make sense gonna in, get... in the narrative, dude. I've... T- yeah. What? I'm... Someday. Yes, yes. And I feel like if he'd had more time, he would have gotten to the point where he, like, gave her the full arc. But he never did. So it's just did. hanging there, driving all of us crazy. Driving all of us crazy. And do we have to do everything ourselves? Yeah. <laughs> so, but I, I love the sort of, you know, the arc that everyone should go read The Light Between Worlds. Because you'll get that sort of satisfaction of, like, the sort of Susan character of, like, well, what happened to her? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. But to bring it back to Consuming Fire, I yes. think there are I think <laughs> yes. there are ways into this book. You can if if you just want a, a great revenge story. If you want a story about sisters. Story. There's a lot of angles here. It's not just so hopefully people yes, discover absolutely. it. And there and I have had like commentary from readers already at this point where they were like, Yeah, I mean I noticed that there were religious elements, but I just read it as a great adventure story and yeah. it stands perfectly well as that. I was like, good, awesome, because I wanted it to. I wanted it to be accessible to as many people as possible. And again, I say to listeners, bone knife. What more do you need? Mm -hmm. Bone knife. (laughs) So (laughs) Um, I did have one more question, which is Mm. for folks who like, obviously, everyone listening to this, go out immediately and read all of Laura's books. Um, You can find uh, some of them here at the Ferndale Area District Library. Mm -hmm. And I am going to talk to our YA librarian about getting the rest of them. Um, But for folks who enjoy your books, what books do you recommend to go on to next? So someone's like, oh, I'm so stoked for Consuming Fire, huge Laura Weymouth fan. But once we've read A Consuming Fire, we have to wait for the next one. What should we read in the meantime? So there is this series of books. And for anyone who has followed me on social media for more than five minutes, you will know that there's a particular YA series that is extremely dear to me. And it really feeds into and inspires certain aspects of pretty much all of my books. And it's called The Lumetaire Chronicles. And it is a series written by an Australian author, Melina Marchetta. Uh, I believe she's won the Prince Award for one of her contemporaries, but she forayed into fantasy and she wrote this incredibly brilliant trilogy. And it is essentially about the refugee experience through a fantasy lens. And she does such a beautiful job of writing about it and portraying it. And my family background is that all of my maternal great-grandparents arrived in Canada as refugees in the wake of the Russian Civil War in the 1920s. Um, 
because my family's Mennonite and they were like particularly targeted and it was a really difficult time for them. And so they all arrived in Canada as refugees with essentially nothing. And I heard a lot of really, I mean, I didn't realize at the time, but traumatic stories as a kid growing up from my grandmother about just things that had happened to extended family members who were like taken off and never seen or heard from again. And like people who were sent on forced marches and others who starved to death. And so that was part of the background of my childhood. And I had never seen it portrayed within fantasy, like extensively or effectively. And so I read these books and it felt like seeing my own family history on the pages of a book. And it was just like sort of revolutionary for me. And I latched onto them and like imprinted super hard on this particular series. And above and beyond that, they're just beautiful. And they do this so interestingly and sensitively and they're one of those series where there's a fairly big cast of characters, but every single character is interesting and nuanced and like a full person in their own right. So as you're reading it, you're like, this world feels fully realized. And like any person who walks across the page is somebody who goes on to live their entire life afterwards, which I really, really love in a story. So I cannot recommend them highly enough. They're just fantastic. Excellent. Oh, I'm so excited. I have to go see if we have those in now and put them on hold yes, if we the don't. The first one's called Finnegan of the Rock. And okay. They're just spectacular. Oh, yay. And they were heavily inspired by the Queen's Thief series. So, yeah, everything. Listen, <laughs> someday, listener, we joke all the time that like Jeff just needs to like, there's a couple of topics that he can just put me in front of a microphone and say, start talking. And then an hour later, we'll have a podcast. This is a big one. Yeah. Queen's Thief series. Yep. We're going to have to add that to the list yep. along with Dorothy Sayers and Lame as Rob. Yep. So, <laughs> yep. Uh, Laura, you have to come on the podcast the next time your next book is out. Yes. So we had oh, a I would love to. Blast talking to you. Thanks so much for, for joining us. And um, well, thank you for having me. Congrats on the book. Yes. Uh, by the time this airs, it'll be a little bit after the book is out. So, technically, the people we're talking to right now, the book is out. The so. book is out. You can, oh, yes. you can living in the future. One are, yeah. click buy that. Right It'll be on our shelves. Yep. You can go to your local bookstore. Mm -hmm. A good winter read. A great winter read. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Uh, Laura, thanks so much. Um, take the dog for a walk and go think of a new book. And I'm so glad we got <laughs> awesome. to see your cat in the background. Oh, yeah, that's Darcy. I actually have three cats, <gasps> one of whom I got by accident, but I did get this one mostly on purpose. Hello, so. Darcy. Yeah, they're asleep. <laughs> they, this is wonderful. I love this for them. And that was our chat with Laura E. Weymouth. You will have uh, more info to find in our show notes about her other books, including Light Between Worlds. Yes. Uh, and wow, so fun. So great. She was, she was great. Yeah. Can't wait to have her back on the podcast. Yeah. She already seems like a kindred spirit. I She writes the kind of books that are very much my kind of books. Yeah, they were yeah. my kind of books as a, as a teen, as a kid. They're still my kind of books now. I right. like a good third person standalone historical right. fantasy. Right. That's about... That's the center of the Venn diagrams for me. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, love her writing style. Love the emotions of her books. The virtue and the motivating power of women's anger. Yes. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this latest episode of A Little Too Quiet. Thank you so much, Mary Graham. Thank you, Jeff. You 
can support this podcast by going to fernillfriends.org. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And of course, a shout out to John Duffy for giving us music to open and end the episodes. And we'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening. Keep your headphones on because we have more to do. We do.